Hey there, this is Pastor Corey, and welcome to the Branch Life Podcast. After you're done listening, I invite you to connect with us at branchlife.church to make sure you're up to date with everything going on at Branch Life. Want to share what you heard today? Subscribe to our YouTube channel and share this video with someone you want to encourage. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope that this presentation helps you connect with Christ and challenges you to reach those around you with the good news of Jesus. Hey everybody, my name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors at Branch Life. And no matter where you are today, whether you're watching online or you're streaming in your car as you drive, we just want to say thank you for engaging with today's message. We hope that no matter where you are in life, it will be an encouragement to you and that it will cause you to grow in your relationship with Jesus. We also want to challenge you and say don't leave today without taking the next step that you need to take in your faith journey. One of the ways that we can help you with that is if you go to branchlife.church, you'll find steps there on how to take that next step for you. Again, we're thankful that you've engaged with us today, and we hope that we'll see you in the weeks to come. Welcome back to our summer playlist. We're continuing to work our way through the book of Psalms and kind of looking at some of the highlights from the Old Testament book of songs, the book of Psalms. And we're going to continue to do that today. As we start, though, I want to ask you a couple of kind of hard questions. The first question is this. What is the point of encountering Jesus as a church family? Why do we do things like come together on Sunday for worship? Or why do we encourage people to be involved in groups where they encounter Jesus through the, through the Bible? Or, or why do we want and, and exhort people to, to encounter Jesus every day as they, they read their Bible for themselves? To, to ask it another way, we could say, why is worshiping Jesus a meaningful activity for us? Why, why is it meaningful? You know, we're in this crazy time period still of, of the pandemic and COVID, and we're doing things that we never thought we'd have to do, like sit outside in the sweltering hot heat and humidity to, to have a worship service in, in less than ideal circumstances. We're, we're doing things like having our groups meet together outside or, and to wear a mask and, and, and to, to stay six feet apart from one another. We have to, to bring our own chairs and, and that on top of getting the kids ready and, and all of those things to, to participate on Sunday morning. And, and we can ask ourselves, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is doing all these extra things and taking this extra time out of our schedule really worth it? And in the best of times, we might ask ourselves that question if we're honest and it's been a rough morning and the kids are especially crazy or, or that and we, we say, you know, is it really worth it to go to church today? Oftentimes we answer those questions 
in a way that, that kind of says, well, well, yeah, it's worth it because I'm going to be spiritually refreshed for the week ahead. I need to be recharged for the upcoming week. Or maybe we answer it and say, yeah, it's worth it because I need to, to be fed from God's word. And so I'm going to come and, and the pastor is going to, to share God's word and, and it's going to, to feed my soul. Both of those things uh, may be great, but is that really the ultimate reason for worship? Sometimes we, we may talk about it in terms of our duty. And it's our, our duty to engage in worship because Jesus has done so much for us that then we, we have to and we must worship him. Because if we didn't, we're somehow letting him down. And while worship is always a response to what Jesus has done and what God has done for us, somehow thinking it's our duty probably isn't the greatest motivation either. And I want to suggest that what the psalm that we're going to take a look at today, and the reason why this psalm is by far and away the most popular psalm in the New Testament, is that, that it helps us understand what the ultimate and the primary, the first and the foundational motivation for worship should be. And we could say it this way, that, that who Jesus is, is the why for our worship. Who Jesus is, is the why for our worship. Jesus' character, his actions, what he does and who he is should be the primary and the ultimate, the foundational motivation for us entering into worship. When Jesus is the focus, those questions of where we're meeting and if it's in a field outside during the summer or if it's in an air-conditioned auditorium, become secondary. When, when Jesus becomes the, the focus, we do end up getting encouragement and, and our souls end up being fed, not because of the, the, the songs that we're saying and they, they happen to be the ones that we really like, or because of the, the great rhetorical flair of the preacher and Spoiler alert, it's probably not going to be that rhetorically great today. But we get encouraged because we have entered in and we have engaged with and we have experienced God's matchless love as demonstrated in His Son, Jesus Christ. The, the psalm that we're going to take a look at today is going to help focus our attention upon the key attributes of what the New Testament writers wanted us to know more than anything else about who Jesus is. Let's take a look and let's read uh, together from Psalm 110. Uh, it's just about right in the middle of your Bible. It's in the Old Testament, which is the first kind of two-thirds of your Bible. But, but the, the book of Psalms, there's 150 chapters or songs in Psalms. And so we're, we're about two-thirds of the way through the book. But uh, you follow along as I read. It says, A Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies 
your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the whole, the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord to us today. The first question that, that we have to ask as we enter in and try to, to figure out this psalm out a little bit is, Okay, Scott, you said that this was going to help us know all about Jesus. I didn't even hear Jesus' name mentioned. How do we know that this psalm is talking about Jesus? Well, let's think back to that first verse of the, of the psalm. And really, even before that first verse, that little inscription, it may be kind of in different font in your Bible, but it says, a psalm of David, or, or your version may say, of David, a psalm, or, or something like that. And that actually is part of the, the biblical text. And so it reminds us here, this is a psalm written by David. Jesus himself, as recorded in, in Matthew and Mark, highlights the fact that these are David's words. And, and, and David is talking here and he says, The Lord, speaking of God, says to my Lord, and then it continues on. Now just this juxtaposition of, of David's authorship with this first phrase causes us to ask a lot of questions. And really it caused the Jews in the Old Testament days and up through Jesus' time to ask a lot of questions about this psalm and to wrestle with what in the world does this mean? So, so David had a prophetic visitation or, or words that were given to him by God himself, the Lord, Jehovah, his covenantal name. And this is kind of the standard prophetic uh, expression to introduce prophecy that was coming. The Lord said, the word of the Lord. These are the things that, that are coming. And then... David says, the Lord says to my Lord. And that, that's the part that, that begins to, to cause some questions in our mind. My Lord? I thought David was the king. Who's, who is he talking about here? What, what Lord in the future? He's the king. Everyone who comes after him is going to be lesser. And it's not just that D David is a king of ancient Israel. David is the king. Of ancient Israel. He's the one that God made special promises to. He's the one that is held up as the example for all kings that are to come. He is the one that is described as being a man after God's own heart. And yet David looks and says, someone in the future, someone that's going to come after me, and normally that person would be lesser, is going to be my Lord. 
as David wrestled with this and as the, the Old Testament thinkers and, and, and people up until Jesus Day wrestled with this, they came to understand that this was referring to the Messiah. And while David may have not known all of the details about Jesus and, and everything that was going to happen in the future, David almost certainly knew that this was a messianic prophecy that he had received of the promised one that was to come. Jesus picks up on the themes of this psalm and refers to himself in, in these sort of terms that, that make it very clear he's identifying as this Lord that was to come. All of the New Testament authors that, that use this psalm dozens of times always use it in reference to Jesus. There was no doubt in any of their minds that this psalm was all about Jesus. So, what does this psalm want us to know about Jesus? There's two things that are, that are talked about in this psalm that, that the psalmist wants us to know. And there's two kind of declarations or words from God. The first is here in verse 1, and then the second is in verse 4, and then there's kind of some commentary or explanation from it. And we're going to think about these two themes or ideas, and they are the primary things that the Bible and the New Testament authors want us to know about who Jesus is and why he is the motivation for our worship. The first one is this, that Jesus is the victorious heavenly king. Jesus is the victorious heavenly king. Let's take a look at this, this passage again. So we, we have verse 1 that says, Sit at my right hand. God says to this one that's coming in the future, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He says, okay, be right next to me. And I am going to, to, to have you here in this position of authority and power until all of your enemies are taken forward. And if we weren't convinced that that is a reference to his kingship, verse 2 says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. So he's not just a king. He's a king, Jesus, that rules with power. Jesus is, is a king that, that is going to have a mighty scepter. He's going to rule in the midst of his enemies. No one is going to be able to stand against him. The result of that then is in verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Other versions say your, your troops will, will freely pre present themselves. And the idea here is of, of the people presenting themselves to Jesus. They're, they're freely joining in his army to follow him into battle. They, they're going to rise up and say, yeah, we're going to go with you to fight those that, that stand against you. Jesus transforms people and makes them into these warriors that, that come alongside of them. Uh, we're going to skip verse 4 for the time being. We're going to come back to that. But look down at verses 5 and 6. It says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. And, 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 the psalmist wants us to know that Jesus as king is also going to judge peoples and nations. Those that, that stand against him are going to face the consequences of it. He is the victorious 
heavenly king. And then verse, verse 7 highlights this, this reality that he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And it's this, that, that Jesus is a real person on earth. Yes, Jesus is, is in heaven uh, right now, but, but he will come back in the future to, to set up his ultimate kingdom here on earth and to rule over it all as king. That is who Jesus does, is and what the psalmist wants us to know. Now, I've just kind of ran through these really quick. Uh, the New Testament, I said, you know, mentions these verses, and especially verse 1, over and over again. And they tease out all sorts of nuances and ideas and, and that. And it was a fight as I prepared for this sermon to say, okay, how much do I go down all these rabbit trails? Because they're really encouraging and interesting. I read a commentary and listened to a message by a guy who's way smarter than me, D.A. Carson. He gave a message where he just scratched the surface of some of these implications, and it took him over an hour. Don't worry, I'm not going to do all that. But we just highlight these five realities that are communicated in this passage to remind us what the Bible wants us to know about Jesus is that he is our victorious heavenly king. And that we should worship him and come and be in awe of who he is. The, the reason that Jesus is the why for our worship of who he is, is because he is the great king of kings, the great lord of lords. And he is awesome in his splendor. You know, I've flown across an ocean. I've taken trains. I've sat on the side of the road with hordes of people to watch the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace. Then I took a, another train and I went to Paris and, and I did the same sort of thing all over again to, to see the, the palace of Versailles. These great kingly experiences, royal experiences. And I put all this effort into it. And they, it was fun, it was neat, it was great. But when we have an opportunity to come together for worship with our church family on Sundays... When we have an opportunity to engage Jesus with a small group of people on whatever day our group happens to be meeting, when we have an opportunity to every morning open our Bibles and engage God's Word and see Jesus in there, we have the, the opportunity to engage in something way more better and awe-inspiring than the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace or the Palace of Versailles or any other human experience that we could come up with. And, and I'm, I'm afraid that, that sometimes we, we miss that. And I, we don't want to let the regularity of worship diminish our awe of encountering King Jesus. Don't let the fact that we can do it every day and every week, we can do it any moment that we pull out our phone and, and open our Bible app or, or, or look at, at God's Word, 
diminish the fact that we are engaging with the king of the universe. The next thing that the psalmist wants us to know is that Jesus is the eternal priest. Jesus is the eternal priest. Uh, That verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now it says, you are a priest forever. Okay, great. Jesus is the eternal priest. Then it says, after the order of Melchizedek. What in the world does that mean? Who in the world is Melchizedek? Is that even a person? That's a fair question because Melchizedek only shows up in just like three verses in Genesis. And it's this kind of crazy story. Abraham had a nephew named Lot. Lot ended up getting in trouble a number of times. But, but he was living in a city and the city was kind of attacked by other kings. There were kings in that day that were kind of like uh, glorified mayors of, of the towns. And they, they would have raiding parties and they would go and try to capture another city and take their possessions and then go. A group of kings did that and they came and they took the, the, the spoils of the city, including some of the people, including Lot. And so the, this group of cities was defeated by these other kings and then they got scared and they started running. The king started chasing after them. Abraham, who is Lot's uncle, got wind of this and Abraham had a bigger army than, than these kings kind of put together and he went and chased them down with his trained men and he recovered all of the spoils and he got his nephew Lot coming back. When he comes back, the mayor of the city where... Where, or the king of this city, where, where Lot had been saying, says, hey, I want to give you a bunch of stuff, which is standard practice, for, for doing this. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this guy Melchizedek shows up. And look at these verses. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. So he was, he was a priest of the true God, of the God of the Bible. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed uh, be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And then that's it. It goes back into the conversation that Abraham had with the the king of Sodom about about his nephew Lot and what they were going to do with the spoils. And it's bizarre. Because this guy is evidently a big deal. Because here Abraham, the great patriarch, the, the father of the nation of Israel, God's chosen person, gives him in worship and in reverence a tenth of everything that he had. But then he, he disappears. And it's odd because he kind of shows up out of nowhere and then he goes away and we don't know anything about him. We don't know who his parents are. We don't know when he died or when he was born, which is especially odd in Genesis because we keep having these lists of everyone who's important in the book of so-and-so begat so-and-so and then he died. So-and-so begat so-and-so and they lived a hundred and whatever years and then they died. And over and over again, we know everybody who's important in Genesis, who their dad and their mom was and how long they lived and, and all of those things. And Melchizedek, We don't know any of these things. It's almost like he lives forever. Hmm. 
David picks up on this on Psalm 110 and says, hey, this future promised Messiah is going to be a priest and he's going to be a priest like Melchizedek. He's going to be a priest forever. There's another passage of, of scripture that helps us understand why this is so encouraging and, and, and what the significance of it is. And it's Hebrews chapter 7. And we're not going to look into all of this. Again, my kind of pastoral nerd side would love to, to walk through this whole passage, but we don't have the time. Let's take a look and, and think about the implications from Hebrews chapter 7, 22 of what it means that Jesus is the eternal priest. Uh, take a note as you turn there that verses 17 and verses 21 both quote Psalm 110. And they highlight these, this exact verse, Psalm 110, verse 4. And it's talking about Jesus is that person. And first it says that, that Jesus, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. It means that, that Jesus brings about lasting change. Uh, the, the better covenant is in contrast to the Old Testament priests that had a covenant and, and you were supposed to, to bring sacrifices of bulls and, and rams and goats and, and all of these different things and birds if you didn't have the money and that and, and, and you were supposed to bring them to the priests and they were to, to take care of it and it was to acknowledge your guilt before God and, and you were to re receive atonement. The problem was that never produced lasting eternal change in people. God still wanted their hearts to be changed. And the book of Psalms talks about that over and over again as well. But Jesus, as the eternal king, the guarantor of a better covenant, because he's the eternal king, is able to truly change people forever. Let's continue on. Verses 23 and 24. The former priests, those Old Testament priests, were many in number. Because they were prevented from, by death from continuing in office. But he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Jesus is always going to know his followers. Let's imagine that you were part of a, a church or a religion that was dependent upon going to a priest to experience God. And, and, you know, you want a, an experienced priest. You want someone that knows what they're doing. So you, you pick someone that's a few years ahead of you, got some a little bit more life experience than you, and, and you work with him. You, you pour out your soul to that person, and you get spiritual counsel for years and years and years. And then all of a sudden, that priest has the audacity to die. And you got to start all over again. And at this point, it's a younger priest, and you're not so sure that you want to get to know him and share all your, your stuff with and, and experience God in, in that sort of way. This passage is saying Jesus is the eternal priest. He always is going to know you. He holds his priesthood permanently. He is there for you every day, every moment. Uh, the passage continues on in verse 25. says, Consequently, because of this, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And, and the fact that Jesus is a priest forever means that Jesus is able to always save those who draw near to God through him. 
Maybe you've wondered, how is it that I, a thousand, almost two thousand years after Jesus Christ, can, can experience salvation? It's because Jesus is still our eternal priest. How is it that people a hundred years ago were able to experience salvation? Jesus is the eternal priest. How is it that people 500, 1,000 years ago were able to experience salvation? It's because Jesus is the eternal priest and he is there making a way for us to God, for those that, that draw near to God. Jesus is able to save always those who draw near for him. If we project into the future for 100 years, he's still going to be able to do it. The next idea is in that same verse too, that, that Jesus will always make intercession for his followers since he always lives to make intercession for them. There is never a point when you're a child of God that Jesus isn't there helping for you, going before God and pleading your case, saying, yes, this is my child, this is my son, this is my daughter. Because they have trusted in Jesus Christ, they can come to you, God, because of what I've done. Yeah, they, they sinned and they, they've made a mistake, but they're asking for forgiveness based on what I've done. Jesus is always making intercession for you. There is never a moment in your life when that is not available if, Jesus, if you're a follower of his the passage continues, for it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unsane, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. And the, the, this verse reminds us that, that Jesus is perfect. Those priests in the Old Testament were not perfect. They, they sinned themselves and they, you had to hope that, hey, may, I hope that they've made themselves right before God so that then they can help the sins of the people. We never have to worry about that with Jesus. Jesus is perfect. He is without sin. And just as a, a confession or a newsflash, I'm not perfect either. And none of the other pastors that are part of Branch Life or any other church on the planet today are perfect. And if you're looking to us to, to fix it and to be your, your priest, <laughs> you're going to be out of luck. But Jesus is perfect. And he is the ultimate and the eternal priest. Verse 27 says, not only is he the priest, but he's the one who offered himself up. He made the way. He knew that there had to be a punishment that was paid. And all those sacrifices in the Old Testament were, were just pointing the picture and helping people understand that Jesus was coming one day. Jesus came and he offered himself once and for all so that we could have his righteousness so that we could have forgiveness so that we could stand before God and Jesus can make intercession for us. He offered himself. And lastly, verse 28 says that for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. This is the Old Testament system. 
but the word of the oath. Jesus is a priest, not because of the law, not because of the tribe that he was from. In fact, he was from the tribe that, that wasn't the priest. He was from Judah, not Levi. But the word of the oath, remember verse 4 of Psalm 110 says, The Lord has sworn. So the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which has, came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is the perfect priest forever. No matter what happens, Jesus is still going to be that priest. These two ideas of Jesus being the king and Jesus being the priest shaped what the New Testament wanted to be at the center of our worship of Jesus and wanted the motivation for our worship to be like this. And they work so well together. You know, I could go again over to London and I could stand outside and, and be all excited and know all of the family history and the, the drama with the sons and, and all of that with Queen Elizabeth and I could see her and I could cheer and be awe, in awe of her as she drives by in the way to one of her palaces. But you know what? She's never asking me in for tea or for lunch or to, to have a chat. We can worship and be in awe of God our King, but because Jesus is also our priest, we can go in and we can have access and we can be with him forever. And that is why we worship. I want to leave you with just a few next steps as, as we wrap up our thoughts today. And the first is this, to invite you to believe. Have you drawn near to God? Have you believed that Jesus is the great king and priest, that he is the one and only way to have a relationship with God that lasts forever, and that he did that by offering himself on the cross and then rising from the grave? We would invite you in this very moment to make a faith decision to believe in Jesus Christ and accept him as your Lord and Savior. If you'd like more information on how to do that, you can go to our website and visit the Gospel tab. It's always on the top menu of whatever page that you're on, and you can just click on that thing that says the Gospel. And you can go there, and you can think about this a little bit more, and you can see what it means to be a follower of Him. If you have made this decision, we invite you to respond and to let us know uh, either on that gospel page or on the response card that will be shared uh, in the chat a little bit later on. I would also then encourage you, if you have done that, that you would be motivated for worship by who Jesus is. That you would allow these things to be the first, the foundational, and the ultimate motivation for your reason, for your worship. All the other things are secondary in our gravy. But who Jesus is must be the motivation for our worship. And because of that, then, we need to commit ourselves to keep encountering Jesus through the Bible. That we can get a bigger picture and a greater view of who he is. And would you commit to encountering him, maybe every day this next week, by engaging in Bible study? If that's a little too much to chew because you've never read the Bible before, say, okay, I'm going to do that five times or I'm going to do that three times. Commit to engaging Jesus through the Bible. 
And then lastly, that you would declare. Maybe right now if you're worshiping with others, maybe in your group this upcoming week, maybe online as you reflect on this, this experience today, but that you would declare publicly that Jesus is your king and your priest. Jesus is matchless and is amazing. And when we see who he really is, we can't help but worship. Let's pray. God, thank you for these reminders from your word. Help us to, to know Jesus above all. Help us to be motivated by who he is to then respond in worship. God, help our worship and our, our awe, our appreciation, our love for Jesus to be so evident in our lives that the people around us keep asking, what in the world is up with this Jesus guy? God, give us those opportunities this week. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.